This is Paul, and I'm a fan of this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. I use Audible when I'm planning a road trip with over 35,000 titles, including Einstein by Walter Isaacson or A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. There are lots of books to choose from, but don't wait to go on a trip. Log on to www.audible.com slash science talk and get a free audiobook. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 19th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll look into the fascinating world of ethnobotany with Nat Bletter. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Nat Bletter is finishing up his doctorate at the City University of New York and through the International Plant Science Center at the New York Botanical Garden. We first got in touch a few months ago when he sent me a recent scholarly publication, which we'll talk about, and this past Sunday, he led a walk through Central Park in search of edible plants, you know, in case you're stranded there and can't make it to a hot dog stand. Anyway, we walked and then we talked. I'm sitting in Central Park with Nat Bletter. Nat is an ethnobotanist. Why don't you start off by explaining what ethnobotany is and what you do? Okay, thanks for having me on, Steve. Um, ethnobotany is basically defined as the relationship of plants and people. So it can be uh, more specifically the study of plants that people use for food, for clothing, for medicine, for construction, for ceremony, for decoration. Uh, any useful plant we might talk about. Um, and I specifically focus on the medicinal plants and the edible plants. And with my research on chocolate, I guess the uh, psychoactive plants too, you could say. You define chocolate as a psychoactive plant? Oh, definitely, yeah. How's that? Um, I, uh, I just uh, wrote a, a chapter on the uh, traditional uses of cacao all throughout the Americas, and I did a review of the chemistry of the plant, and I found that there's about 13 different um, neurotransmitter or neurotransmitter analogs in chocolate, including uh, dopamine analogs or precursors, serotonin, uh, tryptamine, cannabinoids. So it's uh, along with the phenethylamines and the and the caffeine and theobromine that are traditionally discussed, and they're all there in very small amounts. But it, it's got to be that with the combination of all these different uh, neurotransmitters that that that's I think why it has such a profound effect on people. And also, it's delicious. Yeah, that too. Yeah. So you uh, you travel around the world as part of your research. Where do you go, and what do you do there? Um, my main research uh, for my PhD is in Peru, in the Peruvian Amazon, and in Mali, in West Africa. Um, and I am looking at uh, the medicinal plants used there uh, in traditional societies and indigenous groups for um, uh, parasitic diseases like malaria, autoimmune diseases like diabetes and eczema, and uh, uterine fibroids, and trying to see if there's an overlap so that if people in Peru and Mali are using uh, a similar species to treat the same disease, that it's a good bet that it's something effective because they've independently found something uh, useful. You know, there, there's probably no chance or very little chance that someone in Peru has talked to someone in Mali about, oh, you should use this plant for malaria because they're so separated. Um, 
and they're not going to have the same exact species, but we can look at the, the evolutionary relations of the plants and say, oh, they're using something pretty close to both to treat malaria. So let's take those plants into the lab first before any of the other ones because they're most likely to be effective. And you'll look for an active ingredient in the plant, some kind of active compound that both plants produce. Might even be the same compound or maybe it's a related compound. It could be, yeah. And we haven't gotten that far yet. I mean, if there's existing literature studies looking at those plants where they found the active compound, I definitely would use that. But first, I'm trying to show that there's a pattern that um, if you uh, do some uh, math and try to synthesize all this information about the different plants being used in different cultures for different diseases and using the evolutionary relationships of the plants, the cultures, and the diseases to sort of merge it all together and have these equations spit out uh, a sort of potential efficacy or what our best guess of what the efficacy of this plant is. So now I'm trying to test just on crude extracts of the plants what the uh, efficacy is. And then if something turns out to be really effective, then we would we would go on and, and try to narrow it down to one or a group of compounds in the plants. We were just on this uh, this walk through Central Park together where you were pointing out what some of the edible plants are in the park. And you you noted that in your ethnobotanical research, you you're not only interested in the plant, you're interested in specifically how the plant is used. For example, if, uh, if an indigenous uh, person uses the plant only when it grows next to some other plant, so why don't you talk a little bit about that, how the, how the context is such an important part of, of what's in the plant and what you can possibly get out of the plant. Yeah, it's becoming clearer and clearer as people look at different stages of the plant's growth um, and in different uh, habitats growing next to other plants that the stressors in the environment can really change the chemistry um, because... Most of the, the medicinal compounds in the plants are what are called secondary compounds. So they're not, uh, things central to the metabolism of the plant, like sugar and water and ATP for energy and DNA. There are these other compounds that the plant, it, it needs extra energy. It, it needs, it will only make them when it really needs them. Um, and so when it's in a stressful environment, it definitely needs them to protect itself from attack by pests. And, uh, you know, if it's water stressed or if there's some plant growing next to it that's putting out toxic chemicals, as a lot of plants like walnuts um, or eucalyptus do, um, it, in response to those compounds, it will produce other compounds that uh, turn out to be good antioxidants for humans, too. And that's why they, they work as uh, uh, effective medicines. So if you sequence the genome of the plant, you might find the gene... For a particular compound, but that gene wouldn't get expressed unless the the situation the, the stressors were uh, were affecting the plant in that particular situation, and then that gene gets turned on. Exactly. Yeah. There's something that that flips a switch, and it's it's usually not just one gene either, because most of these secondary compounds that make effective medicines are not. Uh, just simple proteins that can be made by one gene. They're, um, they're actually simpler molecules, but they have to be made by a whole pathway. Um, 
that has you know enzymes that are snipping here and adding on uh, parts to the compound there. Um, so that whole pathway uh, has to get turned on. And all these pathways can go in different directions. So, for instance, in the opium poppy, one uh, there's one pathway that makes uh, the... Um, the the heroin compound, the opium compound, and there's other ones that make the codeine compounds, and uh, so in different uh, in different stress conditions. Let's let's uh, let's take a little break while uh, while the helicopter figures out where it wants to go. Science video news now at siam.com. Easy to view and updated three times a day. Video news just a click away at siam.com/video. Okay, the, the uh, chopper seems to have passed by. So uh, you're saying there are multiple pathways. Under one set of conditions, you might get the uh, opium. On, under another, you might get codeine. Yeah. So, yeah, depending on the stress, they found uh, there's one study in, um, uh, I believe it was in New Zealand or Australia, where uh, they grew the opium poppy in, in different conditions under different stress levels. And they found that uh, in certain cases it made more of the codeine, and in other cases it made more of the opium. So um, if they want to uh, grow it for pharmaceutical production, they they it turned out that they had to intentionally stress the plant out. And and when indigenous people are saying, I pick it from this side of the mountain when it's growing next to this tree, they're doing effectively the same thing. If a pharmaceutical company wants to harvest these biomolecules, they're going to be in much better shape if they uh, have an ethnobotanist along to uh, really analyze the context of the use of the plant, the entire plant, not just a search for active ingredients. Exactly. And uh, there, there was a big uh, push in the, the 1990s of pharmaceutical companies uh, trying to join up with ethnobotanists and look for uh, medicinal plants. But I think they're always trying to do it as quick as possible, so they didn't always pay attention to these things and, uh, you know, offer it. And they would just send, you know, a, a, a pharmacologist down to collect these plants, and and so they wouldn't collect exactly the right one in the right condition. And then they'd take it into lab and test in it, and it wouldn't work because it didn't wasn't making those secondary compounds when they harvested it. Um, and there's even cases of, you know, they say they they use the root, but uh, people don't want to bother gathering the roots, so they just get the leaves instead. And these parts of the plant make completely different compounds as well. So, um, yeah, you have to you have to spend some more time doing interviews and asking exactly how it's used, how it's prepared, because often they're detoxifying uh, the plants or they're making mixtures of the plants. So, um, and that's something that's really hard for Western medicine to deal with. You know, Western medicine likes one compound. Um, from one plant that, you know, will cure cancer. But it might be this combination of 50 different compounds from 10 different plants that when you mix together actually uh, do this in combination. And uh, we're starting to realize that, that you have to pay attention to the synergy of the different compounds. And so that's part of my research is to try to, in addition to linking these plants from different continents, also looking at mixtures of different plants and seeing, well, do these, uh, you know, groups of species always show up together in conjunction in mixtures? Um, and it, 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 it's becoming more and more apparent. There are more and more cases where this, uh, turns out to be effective. For instance, in, um, uh, in, uh, Mahonia or Oregon grape, 
It's a, a plant from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there's one compound um, called uh, hydnocarpine that will uh, kill a certain type of bacteria. But the bacteria develops a resistance where it, it, uh, it evolves this pump to remove the hydnocarpine from its cells and it's no longer toxic. And then it turns out that the, um, the Oregon grape also has this other compound called berberine, which uh, stops that pump from working. So it's only in combination these two compounds in that plant will actually still kill the bacteria. So if, you know, a pharmacologist had come along and said, okay, we're just going to take the hydnocarpine and we're going to give that to people and it will cure them of their uh, strep throat or whatever, you know, after, a, you know, a year of use, the, most of the bacteria would develop resistance. But if we had given them um, those two compounds or even the whole plant together with uh, what other, uh, uh, whatever other auxiliary compounds there might be, it would take much, much longer for resistance to develop. And this is becoming really important in malaria treatment because malaria, um, with malaria uh, medicines, resistance develops incredibly fast. And so it, it's like every five years we have to find a new malaria medicine as uh, mefloquine becomes, becomes ineffective and chloroquine in. And I just had a friend come back from Ghana who was taking malarone and she still got malaria. So... It's, uh, this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And there's, uh, one plant I think I mentioned on the walk, uh, Sweet Annie or Ching Hao is a Chinese plant that's being used. Um, it's been used traditionally to treat malaria and fevers, and they extract a compound called artemisinin from that, um, which they're trying to use more and more in Africa as resistance develops. It's very expensive right now, so it's hard for these poor African countries to use it. Um, but, in cases where they are using it, they're, they're already starting to see resistance develop and they're realizing, oh, we should use, uh, all 10 of the compounds that were found in Artemisia, uh, that were, had some efficacy against malaria. They only took the one that had the most efficacy, but there was these other minor compounds. If you kept all those in there, it would take much, much longer for the malaria parasite to develop resistance to all the mechanisms of those compounds. Really interesting. Let's, uh, let's segue. I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about a really fun article that you, uh, co-authored that appeared in, was it the Journal of Ethnobotany? It was Ethnobotany Research and Applications. Ethnobotany Research and Applications. Why don't you just talk about the paper? All right. It was, uh, this is a little comic relief we did at, uh, at a ethnobotany uh, conference, the Society of Economic Botany, uh, and then the paper came out in the April first issue of right. Uh, so we hope that people would catch on fairly quick. Um, it was on it was on a newly discovered or newly described plant family called the Similacraceae. So all uh, plant families end in ACA something. So the 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 legumes and beans are fabaceae. So we just took the word uh, simulacrum uh, for for artifice, uh, and and we turned that into a family name. So we described the plastic plants that you might see at your dentist, the glass flowers that they have up at the Harvard uh, Botanical Museum, the the metal plants that you might see in, in your local mall, uh, fabric plants you might see down at the local Chinese restaurant. And we, we applied a, a 
the traditional botanical description of them, including the Latin description. In this case, we didn't pig Latin, however. Yeah, pig Latin is right. So uh, what did you find altogether? I mean, a family is a, is a fairly high uh, taxonomic category. So what you, you then found 17 uh, genera, was it? Exactly, yeah. Good. And how many species? Uh, so far in our, in our arduous research, we've... Uh, we found about 86 species, but, you know, every day we find more. They're all over the place, and we're really shocked that this family hasn't been described before. And why don't you give us just some more examples? Uh, you know, you talked about the uh, the woven flowers or, or the uh, the metal plants, but uh, why don't you talk about what, what you actually named some of the individual species? All right, well, I have to... Uh, I have to definitely credit my co-authors, Kurt Reinertsen, who's a classmate of mine at CUNY, um, and, uh, Julie Velasquez-Runk, uh, who was at Yale at the time. They were, they were also traveling all over the place and finding specimens in Thailand, uh, and, and in Panama and looking for these hot spots, as we call them, of the Similacracy. Um, so the, the, the wax fruit on, on grandma's table. Right. That counts, right? Yeah. yeah. Let's see, wax fruit, what do we call it? That was paraffinia, I think. Paraffinius, exactly. And there was the, there's some of the rarer genera. There's the, the balloon shaped flowers that we called hot area, I think. Um, there's the one, the one from, uh, the one from Thailand from the, um, the, it was like, there was a restaurant that called Cabbages and Condoms that was, uh, sponsored by the, the office of, um, uh, sexual health or something like AIDS awareness. And they had, uh, a genus we called prophylactica, which was flowers made out of condoms. And there was, uh, let's see what else. There's the conglomeratia, the cement, the cement plants. So several of those in Laos. Um, there's the, uh, luminous, which were all the, the glowing and light up plants. There's, uh, plasticus was definitely the first the first genus that we found in Hawaii, uh, way back in 2001, that was when we first started our research. And these are like just plastic ferns you see at the, in the hotel lobby or something? I think it was a plastic orchid was the first one we described. Um, there's textilaria, the fabric ones. There's, uh, papyroidia is the paper ones. Um, yeah, they go on. And one of the great things is the, um, the, the world famous collection at Harvard of the glass, uh, flowers is, now there are about 600 species, I think, maybe, of, uh, of the glass flowers represented at the Harvard Museum. Those all count as w- one genus in your artificial plant collection. Right. Exactly. So that's the silicus genus. Um, and those, those are truly amazing. And I recommend anyone who's up in the Boston area to, to go visit the, the Harvard Natural History Museum. And these, um, I think they were made by, a, a Bulgarian or Hungarian, uh, brothers, um, in the early 1900s. And they're amazing reproductions. I mean, if, if you didn't let a botanist touch them and you put them next to the, the, the same species of living plant, I bet that a lot of them couldn't tell the difference because they, they're down to the minutest part. They're incredibly accurate. Yeah, I've seen them there. They really are amazing. In fact, we did an article on them in Scientific American and I will, uh, 
I'll check to see when that appeared so that people can, can look for it. Nat, thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on, Steve. It was a great time. For more on Nat Bletter and Ethnobotany, just Google Nat Bletter, N-A-T-B-L-E-T-T-E-R. There's a very interesting link in his profile page to an entry on creating talking books for ethnobotanical field research. You might want to look at that. And to find Nat's paper on fake plants, go to simulacracee.org. That's S-I-M-U-L-A-C-R-A-C-E-A-E dot org. You'll see photos there and find a link to the full paper. And to read the Scientific American article on the Harvard Glass Flowers, 800 species, by the way, just go to tinyurl.com slash 2GQGNB. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a new wildlife identification book is coming out, The Field Guide to Household Bugs. Story two, speaking of insects, Cyprian honeybees kill their enemy, the Oriental Hornet, by mobbing it and frying it with their collective body heat. Story three, British scientists have developed skis that wax themselves. And story four, variations in a single gene can determine whether you perceive male sweat as odorless or smelling like vanilla or like urine. Time's up. Story one is true. A field guide to household bugs features info and photos of your favorite silverfish, dust mites, and other insects you probably don't know are living with or even on you. The authors note, for example, that if you've used a pillow for a couple of years, 10% of its weight at this point may be dead dust mites and their detritus. That factoid may sell more pillows than books. Story four is true. Male sweat can smell good or bad to you based on variations in just one of your genes that codes for an odor receptor. The finding appeared in the journal Nature. For more, check out Nikhil Swaminathan's September 18th article on the Siam website called The Scent of a Man. And story three is true. British scientists have indeed created skis that wax themselves. An internal network of tiny tubes, it's a series of tubes, sends a constant stream of wax to the ski surface. For more, check out the September 13th episode of the Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story two about Cyprian honeybees overheating the Oriental Hornet to death is totally bogus, because what they actually do is swarm the hornet and smother it to death. That's according to research published last week in the journal Current Biology. The honeybees sting some enemies, but others have a hard cuticle that the stingers can't get through, so the bees mob most of them and cook them to death with their collective body heat. But the hornet is more heat tolerant, so the ball of bees smothers it. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Check out numerous features at our website, including the blog, Ask the Experts, and the latest science news, all at www.siam.com. And you can write to us at podcast.siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.